Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't believe in me, observed the ghost. I don't, said Scrooge. What evidence would you have of my reality beyond that of your senses? I don't know, said Scrooge. At this, the spirit raised a frightful cry and shook its chains with such a dismal and appalling noise that Scrooge held on tight to his chair to save himself from falling in a swoon. But how much greater was his horror when the phantom took off the bandage round its head, as if it were too warm to wear indoors, and its lower jaw dropped down upon its breast. Man of the worldly mind, replied the ghost, do you believe in me or not? I do, said Scrooge, I must. But why do spirits walk the earth, and why do they come to me? Welcome to After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal. I'm Dr. Maddie Pelling. And I'm Dr. Anthony Delaney. Today we're talking about Charles Dickens and ghosts. Dickens' ghost stories have had a massive impact on our popular culture. His ideas about ghosts have become our ideas about ghosts. Now, much like Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas Eve, we're going to be meeting three Dickensian ghosts, learning how he created a Christmas tradition or not, how he used ghosts to talk about the death of his sister and reflect on revolutionary ideas about the supernatural that were sweeping the world in his lifetime. And we're doing it unbelievably in his drawing room. What an absolutely incredible location. So glad that we've been able to actually do incredible. it here. Not only are Anthony and I here, but we are joined by Dr. Frankie Kabitsky, the Deputy Director of the Charles Dickens Museum. Frankie, welcome to After Dark. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having us. We're here in his space, in what was his space, and I'd love for you to be able to tell our listeners what happened in this house in the course of Charles Dickens' life. What did he experience when he was under this roof? What were the formative things that unfolded right here? Sadly, no ghosts or nah. that have been communicated <laughs> to us. But otherwise, it is a really interesting space. So it's his first adult home that he moves in with his family and he becomes 
a celebrated writer here. So we're sitting in the drawing room at the moment, which is the grand room. This is the entertaining room where he might have had his guests to stay after dinner uh, for a drink or some nibbles or something. But next door is his study, which of course we like to think of as the work engine of this house. So this is where he's writing his novels, he's writing his correspondence, um, and he's sort of creating some fantastic artworks that we know, such as Oliver Twist, The End of the Pickwick Papers, Nicholas Nickleby. So he's doing all of those things. But of course, he's a human person too. So he had his children living here, he had his wife living here. And sadly, he had one of the more formative experiences of his young life. When Dickens moved in, it was a common practice for a new wife to bring their sister to live with them, which is something I think we find quite strange today. But it was something that was quite typical in the period, the idea that the older sister could train the younger sister in how to be a great housewife, how to you know look after a house and instruct servants. And of course, the sister could have a bit of company because it was quite lonely being a Victorian woman at that point. Catherine Dickens wasn't allowed to go out by herself or do all the things that Dickens could do. So the idea is that she could have a bit of company. Now, at that point, Catherine's sister Mary moves in with the family and lives upstairs in the bedroom um, that you can see on the second floor. And Mary is a bit like Catherine herself or like Dickens, a fantastic character, a really interesting person. And Dickens is very fond of her. He tells her stories and all sorts of things and he cares what she thinks of the stories that he's writing. So they have a really good friendship, a really good relationship. But sadly, when Mary was only 17, she actually passes away in this house. Wow, okay. So there's a sense of trauma here, even if her ghost isn't here, there's, there's a sense that this was a really formative moment for Dickens. Exactly, it's really interesting. If you're thinking in terms of the scale, Dickens, like many people in the 19th century or many people today, had many uh, bereavements or sadnesses or things that are really horrific to us today. He lost one of his children, all sorts of horrible things. But at that point, it's the only time really in his career that he doesn't write to deadline. It has such a huge impact on him. He can't finish his latest part of Oliver Twist. And you can see really, you know, this is a hugely upsetting moment. A lot of people have speculated on how um, Dickens responds to it and the fact he takes it so personally. But you've got to think at that point, you know, he's meant to be protecting Mary. He's meant to be the adult, the protector, the gentleman of the household. And he feels really that he's let her down. Mm. It's one of those moments where you're reminded when you're in these really incredible spaces of the feelings that were encapsulated within these four walls. The, the idea that Dickens himself goes to one of those windows following her death, looks out, what's he feeling, what's he thinking, what's he seeing, what's happening behind him, what are the sounds he's hearing upstairs as people lay out to sister-in-law. It, it makes these spaces so incredibly unique because the experiences despite the fact that we all have an idea of what grief feels like, the experiences are still unique and nowhere else can replicate that like this particular yeah. space can. It's wonderful. And I think that one of the things I really love about this house is, of course, it's laid out as a home. So you start to think about him as a person, how he lived, his relationships with his family, you know, very mundane things about, you know, how he wrote his letters, how many stairs he would have climbed up and down mm. every day. But I also love it because of the big windows, you get a sense of the season. And the lighting, and of course, that's a really interesting, you know, thinking about technology and all that sort of 
part of domestic life as well. And I think in that way, you feel kind of a bit more connected to him mm. and connected to the Victorian period. And you can see his relationship to the city outside. You can look out of the same windows and see the London that similar to the London that Dickens could see. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, Dickens chose this house because he was very interested in the location. It was very easy to get to the theatre. It was very easy to get to his publisher. He was still in the middle of it. Saffron Hill, which was famously where Fagan's lair was based, it's only around the corner. And I think, you know, that was something that really influenced Dickens. You're sort of cheek by jowl with the sort of fancy or the less fancy or the criminal or all the people that are in London, which makes London such an amazing city. You mentioned a few moments ago about the seasons and him watching the, the seasons change out of the window. If you haven't noticed, or if you haven't noticed the listeners that can't see what we're seeing, we are surrounded by some incredibly deep red velvets and some greenery and lovely Christmas trees some holly, red berries. We are in the season of Christmas right now. And I think people have this idea that Dickens brings together Christmas plus ghost stories. How accurate is that? Is this something that comes from an older tradition or is it something that he invents? Absolutely. I think most people, when they think of Charles Dickens, they think of A Christmas Carol. And of course, this is one of, you know, I think the English language's most famous ghost stories, or at least one of the most adapted and well-known today. And Dickens, you know, he creates this mammoth success. It really cements his celebrity. But what Dickens is doing is he's not inventing this idea. He's actually reading the zeitgeist and reading what people are already doing, but he's just put it into book form. Um, so it's very interesting. Dickens had always been interested in ghost stories and he's always told his own ghost stories. But with The Christmas Carol, we see it put in a novella form that became incredibly successful. So he's not so much inventing it, but just putting it on paper and kind of popularising it. What really interests me, I think, about A Christmas Carol, other than its popularity and the immense success that it enjoyed, is just how old-fashioned it seemed, even in Dickens' own time. And the ghosts that he conjures... I guess they owe something to a gothic tradition that maybe started 50, 60 years before. Are these ghosts that he is drawing from stories of his own childhood? Why is he using these kinds of old-fashioned spectres? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really important. I think if you think about Dickens in the ghost story, you have to go back to his own childhood. Mm -hmm. So Dickens, as a child, was looked after by a nursemaid who actually greatly enjoyed telling him ghost stories. Mm -hmm. um, so much so that he sort of later reflects that they're a bit age-inappropriate. And in fact, he remembers being utterly terrified by them. <laughs> But I think that really kind of sows the seed for his own fascination in this idea of frightening someone, the performance of ghost stories. So that definitely is something that really sits with Dickens. So much so, actually, he writes a series of ghost stories kind of based on uh, those that he was told as a child called the nursemaid stories mm -hmm. or the nurse's mm -hmm. stories, I should say. And it's really interesting because that always stays with him. Also, as a, a young teenager, he sort of got really into horror magazines in a way that I think lots of people could identify it's very with. very relatable. I think we can relate to that. <laughs> um, it was called The Terrific Register and he got sort of very interested in it. And so all of these things kind of mix up as he's growing up as an adult and kind of, kind of create this idea of his ghost story. So yeah, there's definitely lots of references kind of feeding into mm -hmm. the creation of Marley's ghost and all the other ghosts that kind of haunt that story. Mm. You've touched there on some of the other ghosts that Dickens colours his world with. What do you think is the difference between those ghosts and the ghosts that really endure in the popular imagination, such as Marley's ghost, such as the mm. ghost in, in A Christmas Carol? Do you have any 
opinions, ideas, theories as to why some have really latched onto the public imagination? So I think The Christmas Carol is really interesting because it is a story of redemption. Um, and that is really the heart of it. He's using ghosts to teach people lessons. And, you know, you see this amazing transformation of Scrooge. So I think in that way, there's a benevolence to the ghosts, which appeals to people. And even if you don't really like ghosts, they're sort of good ghosts. Mm -hmm. And I think also with Dickens, he just writes great characters. So if you're thinking of all the different ghosts of, you know, Christmas, present, future, they are characters in themselves, even though, of course, one of them famously doesn't speak. And I think, you know, that creates a humanness to a ghost, which I think adds a resonance to it. But I think for me, it is this idea of redemption and the benevolence of the ghosts that perhaps speak to people that are sceptic or speak to people that are very scared of ghosts in a way that perhaps other ghost stories doesn't. And they sell too, right? That's the thing. Dickens is trying to make a living. We can, mm. I think, forget that sometimes with the distance of 150 plus years where we're thinking he's creating art, which of course he is, and enduring art, but he's also trying to make a living. Absolutely. And I think this is such an important factor if you're thinking about his Christmas stories, which are predominantly the ghost stories. And also, of course, you know, Christmas Carol, which is the most successful, famous of them all, is that the sort of genesis for that story is very interesting. It comes from his desire to really help poor children and children that are suffering at the hands of bad working practices. He decides that actually, you know, he was going to write a pamphlet, but that is not going to cut it. That's not going to get enough attention. So he decides to write a story. And so, you know, that is one element of A Christmas Carol. But the second element, which is really important and sometimes gets overlooked, is the fact that actually his previous novel, Martin Chuzzlewit, really doesn't do very well. Mm. It's not very successful. And he's worried, his publishers are worried that he can't create another success. So, you know, A Christmas Carol is really trying to create the success that he needs, but also to create some money for him in a base level. So it's a really interesting book because you've got all of these different elements. And I suppose if you start to think further along, so Christmas Carol is in 1843, he writes Christmas sort of ghost stories right up until 1867 because they are so popular and people want to read them and they want to buy them. One thing, Frankie, that really interests me about Dickens is that the ghosts that he writes, they stay with him throughout his mm -hmm. career and they... He writes A Christmas Carol to begin with, with these ghosts that are from his youth, from his childhood, from the generations before him. But he introduces us over the course of a huge successful career to all kinds of ghosts and ghosts that really shapeshift um, through that period. And they reflect the anxieties of the Victorian age, the hopes, I guess, of Dickens personally, but of the society that he's living in. Absolutely. I think you can see in some ways a sort of trajectory in Dickens's writing where he becomes sort of darker as he ages. He grapples with his own fame and his own family problems and all sorts of things. And I think this is reflected through all his writing, but of course it's reflected in his ghost stories as well. For me, one of my personal favorites, which perhaps speaks to that is The Signalman. So this is written in 1866. It's a really haunting tale. I won't talk too much about it because it's a short one and I really want people to go and read it. But it's about a signalman who, you know, suffers a ghostly incident. But what I really think is so powerful about that one is it isn't as redemptive or joyful of a Christmas carol, but equally it's sown within his own experiences as well. The year previously, he's in a terrible train crash. And actually, it's interesting. So ghost story is almost like he's working through his own trauma. Mm. 
Mm. Um, and again, like you say, a lot of these anxieties of the period of modernization of all of these things are coming out within this fantastic mm festive uh, ghost story. I have to say the signalman is my favourite Dickens ghost story and yet there's something there about ghostliness around modern technology and I think that's maybe not unique to Dickens but it's certainly something that he introduces us to is this idea that ghosts can be part of the modern world. You know we think of ghosts today, Anthony you're talking about this home that we're in and the tangibility of the past but I think often Dickens gives us ghosts in our own moment, in his own moment certainly and I think there must have been something so satisfying and terrifying for his readers in the 19th century to come across those ghosts that were appearing, albeit in fiction, in real settings that they would have encountered. I think absolutely, because I think a lot of this idea of the ghost story is about, you know, the oral traditions or nostalgic traditions of people perhaps looking back to their childhood or what their ancestors did. But I think you're completely right. Dickens sort of then cuts them and brings them right into the present moment, which adds this amazing sort of uncanny element that is something that we could all experience. I think uncanny is the word. Let's meet our second Dickensian Christmas ghost. This is from The Haunted Man, published in 1848, so just a few years after The Christmas Carol, but a lot's been happening in Dickens' life between those two dates. The Haunted Man is called Redlaw. Here's the scene where we first meet Redlaw's ghost, while Redlaw is sitting by the fire. As the gloom and shadow thickened behind him in that place where it had been gathering so darkly, it took by slow degrees, or out of it there came by some unreal, unsubstantial process an awful likeness of himself. It took no more apparent heed of him than he of it. The Christmas waits were playing somewhere in the distance, and Redlaw seemed to listen to the music. The phantom seemed to listen too. At length, Redlaw spoke, without moving or lifting up his face. Here again, here again, replied the phantom. Who are you? asked Redlaw. I am he, answered the phantom, who had a sister. The phantom, with an evil smile, drew closer to the chair and resting its chin upon its folded hands, its folded hands upon the back and looking down into his face with searching eyes that seemed instinct with fire, went on. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever wondered if the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were actually real? Or what made Alexander so great? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit, where I'm joined by leading academics, best-selling authors, and world-class archaeologists to shine a light on some of ancient history's most fascinating questions, like who built Stonehenge and why? What are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why are they so valuable? And were the Spartan warriors really as formidable as the history books say? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit wherever you get your podcasts. One of the things you spoke about earlier, Frankie, was Charles Dickens choosing to write a novel instead of producing a pamphlet. And I think a lot of that comes down to invoking feeling and making people feel something and making people feel something of what potentially he had felt or what he was feeling. And in this particular ghost, ghost story, there is a clue to what he might have been feeling because he has lost a sister himself, hasn't he? So there is an element of truth in this for him. Absolutely. So The Haunted Man is, uh, it comes out in December 1848. Just a few months before, in uh, September 1848, Dickens lose his, uh, his older sister. They're incredibly close. She's a really talented musician. They were great friends during childhood, still extremely close. And very sadly, she died of consumption or what we now know as tuberculosis at the age of 38. It's a really a horrific event for Dickens and something that you know causes him great sadness. And what I think is really interesting about The Haunted Man is, of course, the protagonist of the story, Professor Redlaw, has lost his own sister. And this is you know, the deep cause of his own sadness throughout the story. There's a real sort of art mirroring life in it. And it's something that is, you know, a really poignant way of thinking about Dickens's own feelings at that time. Mm. So it's quite interesting to kind of look to real life Dickens. Talk to me, Frankie, a little bit about the ghost in The Haunted Man, because it serves quite a different purpose, doesn't it, to the ghost, the three ghosts that we get in A Christmas Carol. Redlaw's ghost is Redlaw. It's a doppelganger of the main character, and he seems to crawl out of the fireplace. And Redlaw, in his grief, is confronted with himself. So what is this ghost doing? It feels quite modern. It feels quite maybe psychological. Is that something that Dickens is interested in? I think absolutely. I think what's really interesting about the book is that it looks a lot about memory. And in that sense, it is quite psychological. It is the sort of hauntings of our mind uh, compared to, say, you know, otherworldly hauntings. And in that sense, I think it's quite powerful. I think you're right, it's darker um, in that sense. And it's really scary. <laughs> yeah, really creepy. And I think the ghost is definitely darker. And it is really a book about memory. And of course, when you're thinking about Christmas, what is something that we're all haunted by at Christmas? It is 
the memories of loved ones we've lost or sadnesses that we might have had throughout the year as we look forward to a new year and a new beginning. And I think in that sense, Dickens is harping back to a very old tradition, if you're thinking about more pagan ideas of rebirth, but also, you know, being very real to the fact that a lot of us suffer from grief. And in that sense, we are haunted by it. And that's what I think Professor Redlaw does so well. It is that psychological grief that haunts us that they really are portraying. I think Charles Dickens would have been a really good guest on After Dark. I agree. I agree. I mean, seance anyone? I know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Speaking of seances, we're not about to do one. <laughs> lock us out of this house immediately. Um, shall we do another ghost? Yes, please. I think this is our give final us, one, actually. Uh, this time it's a later one. And it's called The Haunted House, which we've referenced already. Published in 1857 when Dickens was 49. So the story starts with a central character, John, who is on a night train, and the gentleman sitting opposite him is being very strange. Now, that often happens on trains. That's something we can all relate to, I think. Um, he's listening intently to the sounds of the train, apparently, and then jotting down the words and the letters in a notebook, as if it's some kind of Morse code. John finally turns to his fellow traveller and he says, I beg your pardon, sir, but do you observe anything particular? I have passed the night, said the gentleman contemptuously, as indeed I pass the whole of my time now in spiritual intercourse. Well, said I, and asked if I might be favoured with the last communication. A bird in the hand, said the gentleman, reading his last entry with great solemnity, is worth two in the bosh. Truly, I am of the same opinion, said I, but shouldn't it be bush? It came to me, bosh, returned the gentleman. The gentleman then informed me that Prince Arthur, nephew of King John of England, had described himself as tolerably comfortable in the seventh circle, where he was learning to paint on velvet under the direction of Mrs. Timmer and Mary Queen of Scots. Now, Frankie, what we're getting here is someone in his story who's claiming to talk to people beyond the grave. This is another sort of 19th century phenomenon, isn't it? And it's one that Dickens has quite an interesting relationship with. He's sceptical, a little bit interested, again, sort of dallying and trying to experiment, feel his way with it, but he's he's not entirely sold, is he? Absolutely. So we were talking a little bit about the context of the period that Dickens was writing to in terms of his own life, but also changes that are happening in society. And one of the things, if you're looking at Dickens's ghost stories, is in the 1840s, 50s, there is a wave of interest in spiritualism. So this idea that people can communicate with the dead through a medium, or there can be sort of ghostly interactions, codes, or different ways of communicating with people that have passed, that becomes hugely popular. Uh, seances at this point are really popular. I believe that Queen Victoria even attended a seance. Mm -hmm. You know, it's something that is ripping through society. And of course, Dickens, isn't immune to this interest and you know with the supernatural interest that we've just been discussing that he has he sort of starts to investigate it what's interesting about dickens is he needs to see it for himself mm -hmm. and so he goes around as a good investigative journalist trying to find ways of having ghostly encounters mm -hmm. so he can see what it's like how real is it is it something that he should be thinking about or, you know, is it, as his leanings as a sceptic are calling to him, a sort of a fraud? These people are making money out of people that are grieving, making out of people that are in a lot of pain, which was something that he took really against. 
the greatest moments of this investigative sort of bent of Dickens is on Halloween in 1859, he writes to a very famous spiritualist, someone who believed greatly in it, published books uh, later on the subject called William Howitt. Now, Howitt, as a sort of a believer, responds to Dickens. Dickens requested for a list of haunted houses that him and his good colleague, uh, John Hollinghead, can go to visit and to have ghostly experiences themselves. So Harriet responds with a list of houses. And it's interesting that once Dickens says that they're not going to pay for it, the list dwindles. <laughs> <laughs> it's unsurprising. It's unsurprising. <laughs> but anyway, they do end up going to a pub in Holborn to see if there are any ghostly things. Now... How convenient a pub. I know. <laughs> That's what we've settled on. We've exactly. Settled on a pub. I think, okay. you know, you could see how Dickens was sceptic there and he thought, well, I don't think I'm going to see anything, but I might as well get yeah. a pint. And, you know, they didn't have any of these ghostly happenings. And it's interesting, other places that they visit or how it recommended, people that they spoke to in the area didn't know of these hauntings. So he becomes very, very sceptical of these recommendations, but generally the practice of spiritualists as well. Later on, obviously at this point, they're rather friendly, they're writing to each other, but later on they have quite a large falling out around the time that how it publishes his book in 1863 on sort of spiritualism. Um, and Dickens really begins to call out this practice in a, in a number of articles that are written in his journals. And in particular, he makes fun of wrappings. So this idea of the taps that you might communicate with the dead, uh, writing something along the lines of, you know, I might get a wrapping in my head if I drink enough port. You know, I might get a wrapping in my stomach if I have a sort of dodgy pie. Um, and he starts to really tease it. And um, Harriet gets really quite offended and they have this falling out. But it's quite interesting because he starts open to it. But quickly he realises that actually this practice or a lot of the people that are claiming to be spiritualists aren't really what they say they are. It seems to me that Dickens is really intellectually engaged in this, that not only is he interested in whether or not these phenomena are real, but also he then becomes invested in proving that they're not. And it becomes part of his reputation on the line as well as other people's. And it's something that he feels really strongly about. How much time in his career as a writer, as a public figure, is he giving to these kinds of questions? Is this a huge part of his life, this interest in the supernatural, in spiritualism, in ghosts more broadly? Obviously, he's writing about them in his fiction, but is this dominating a huge portion of his day every day? I mean, <laughs> this, is, this seems to be a huge issue for him. Dickens is a fantastic performer, and that's something that really sits in all of his works. He's an amateur actor. He does brilliant one-man shows towards the later sort of part of his life. He also writes his novel to be performed out loud. And all of this kind of shows you his interesting in storytelling. And I think with ghost stories, it's particularly important because there is such power in telling a ghost story. When you have someone, it's an incredible feeling. And I think that is what really speaks to Dickens about writing the ghost stories that we know or the ghost story tradition. So in that sense, I think that really underpins Dickens's interest in it. But of course, if you're writing ghost stories or you're 
involved in people writing ghost stories, people start to contact you in terms of beliefs that they've had or experiences that they had. And of course, people start to perhaps think that Dickens does believe in ghosts. And I think he starts to question it in some ways because obviously he can see the power of a ghost story, but he doesn't believe in the practice of it. And I think that's a really interesting part of his drive towards the end of that period to kind of take down the spiritualists because that's not really what he's interested in. He wants to explore it, he wants to see it for himself and he's not against it, but as he, the evidence grows and he, he visits lots of places and he speaks to different people and he's not found any ghosts, he starts to, to really question it. I think maybe it's fair to say that what he believes in is the power these stories and these ghosts, whatever you define a ghost to be, these ghosts have, and he sees people maybe abusing that power in the spiritualist community and taking you know, advantage of, of people and taking their money. So maybe it's the, the power that he's buying into, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. The yeah, absolutely. He believes in the power of those stories and that's what really interests him. But he also can see how people are using this medium that he uses you know, for entertainment, for joy and taking advantage of people. I think power is a really interesting word when you think about storytelling and Dickens, because we know that actually around 1844, he comes back from Italy, he's in Italy at that moment, and he tells all of his friends his latest supernatural story, which is The Chimes. And he does this fantastic private reading for his friends. We've got a little illustration, actually, a copy of the illustration just behind you. You can see a group of people sort of gathered together. And when he's writing to his wife, telling her about this experience, he says that one of his friends, the great actor, William McCready, is really sobbing. And he writes to his wife, Catherine, and says what it is to have power, what a thing it is to have power. And I think that really underpins his interest in this, you know, as a performer, Mm -hmm. um, telling a great story. So we know that Dickens never got any concrete evidence, shall we say, of hauntings or, or spiritualism in his life. Have you or your staff or anybody who visits here ever experienced anything that they would refer to as being unexplainable, supernatural, paranormal, <laughs> however you want to phrase it? We get this question actually quite a lot. And um, I always feel like such a party pooper <laughs> because I have spent a lot of time in this house and a huge privilege by myself after dark. And I have had no ghostly experiences. Obviously, I spend a lot of time thinking about Dickens, communicating with Dickens in other ways. So I would hope that he would feel that he could communicate to me if he <laughs> wanted to, um, but sadly not. It's interesting, I think one of the things that we really have as quite a special place for lots of people that love Dickens, celebrate Dickens, love his novels, love the work, love adaptations, anything to do with the stories that live on for Dickens is they do have what could be classed as a spiritual experience yeah. next door in the study. Mm. And that I find fascinating. So I've never seen his ghost in there, but there is a different aura when some people that are big fans of Dickens see his desk. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. they are standing in his study yeah. where he wrote these great books that they love and then they see his writing desk. And it's a testament to the power again mm. of his fiction, isn't it? That people feel some of that energy, some of that power is imbued in this setting and that they can access it by coming here. And I think certainly being here after dark today, it does feel there is a sense of activity in the house, past activity, things that, things that have happened, lives that yeah. have been lived here. And I think you, you can tap into that, I think. 
If you enjoyed this episode of After Dark, please follow wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really liked it, and I know you did, you definitely really liked this, so drop us a review. Go on, do it now. After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal is a podcast by History Hit. This podcast includes music by Epidemic Sounds. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of After Dark. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcast. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. And as a special gift, now don't say we never give you anything, you can also get your first three months for £1 a month when you use the code AFTERDARK at checkout.